Welcome to FRT episode 108. I'm Brad Carr of the IAF in Washington, and we're once again going to reach across the Atlantic to Africa. In our previous episode, my colleague Conan French discussed digital growth across the continent with former CIB Egypt chairman Hisham Ezel Arab. Today, we're going to turn our attention a little further south and talk mobile payments with a focus on sub-Saharan Africa. I'm joined by two leading experts in the region, plus one of my IAF colleagues, Brad Gillis leads Standard Bank's payments business across Africa, and Megan Brown, who as well as being a payments executive at First Rand, is also currently the payments modernisation expert at the Banking Association of South Africa. And across town from me here in Washington at the IAF, Ben Hilgenstock wrote a great research piece on this topic, which we're going to pick up also. So Brad, Megan and Ben, welcome and thanks for joining us on FRT. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Brad. Thank you, Brad. Ben, let's start with your report. Mobile Money in Sub-Saharan Africa, published in August. To begin with, could you tell us about your report and also perhaps what you found most striking in your research? Thank you for the question, Brad, and uh, for putting this great panel together. Uh, Let me start by saying that we had been interested in, in researching this issue in more depth for quite a while due to the potentially transformative power of mobile financial services, especially in Sub Saharan Africa. And before I get to your question, I would also like to take the opportunity to thank my colleague, Darren Sezerjan, who did a lot of the heavy lifting on this report. Uh, In terms of your question, I think I would like to point out four key findings that we found most interesting, and I'm sure we're going to look at some of these in more detail later. The first one is the prominence of sub-Saharan African countries when you look at mobile money use around the world. And we're relying here on data from the IMF's Financial Access Survey. Now, when we look at the value of total mobile money transactions as a share of GDP, nine out of the top 10 countries and 15 out of the top 20 are from the sub-Saharan Africa region. So this is the first thing that we found really striking. The second is the size of the mobile money market itself. Uh, We estimate that the market in 2020 reached something around $275 billion, which is close to 20% of the region's GDP. And if you take out Nigeria and South Africa, where mobile money use is uh, is relatively low, then we're close to just 35% of GDP. So that's a fairly striking number. Now, I have to be careful here and mention that as far as the total amount of transactions is concerned, there is some uncertainty involved in these, uh, in these estimates as we conduct them based on partial data. So there is not data for every country for every year. There is a different estimate from GSMA, which is the mobile communications industry body. Uh, they find an even higher level of $490 billion in 2020, and that would mean a full third of sub-Saharan African GDP. So it's quite an impressive number. The third finding is the relationship between mobile money use and the relative reach of traditional banking services. Now, this is striking, not because we hadn't conceptually thought about it that way when we started out on this research, but in so far as it's actually quite visible in the data, and I'm sure we're going to get into that a little later. And then finally, there is the potential for a fundamental transformation of this industry in the coming years. And there are multiple interconnected developments going on. The consolidation process in a very fragmented industry, 
the growing involvement of investors from outside the Sub-Saharan Africa region, which we're already seeing, uh, the spread of smartphone-based applications, and then finally the market entry of existing global payment platforms and big tech companies. So I would say those are, from my perspective, our perspective, the, the most interesting findings from the report. Ben, I think you've given us a great snapshot and, and probably set out a fair bit of the landscape that we're going to cover here. The point you make there about distinguishing some of the different markets and the adoption being different in South Africa and Nigeria compared to other countries, that's a piece I really want to come back to. Brad, if I could turn to you and holding that thought about some of the different national characteristics for a moment, could I firstly get you to look at the overall growth across the whole continent? For the benefit of those of us that are very distant in other parts of the world, for you at Standard Bank with a business across the continent, how big a deal is this for you? Has it become a game changer for your customers and for your potential customers? I mean, the, the growth has been sort of phenomenal. Uh, year on year, you're seeing growth that's probably exceeds 30% if you look at some of these markets. Uh, and when a new market opens up, and as you rightly say, places like South Africa and Nigeria are still fairly sort of, uh, low in terms of volumes, but where the new markets have opened up and I cite some of the Sort of newer countries like uh, Ghana in the last 10 years have seen an absolutely sort of exponential uh, shift towards mobile money. Um, and beforehand, I guess, was largely underserved and the market had a, a very low uptake from a banking perspective. Another one is Zambia. The, it's a phenomenon that is, you know, would be ignored at our peril um, as a financial services organization. We've, we've clearly, as a bank, probably missed some of the opportunity, um, not that the opportunity has uh, completely disappeared because I think there's, there's plenty of scope to embrace this type of uh, payment and uh, financial services provision. Um, and that sort of boils down to where the partnership models start kicking in. But the reality is that you, you're looking at probably 300 million mobile money accounts, if not more, depending on the numbers you look at. Again, the stats are always a bit thin. Uh, and that's substantial relative. That's 30% of the of the population, and probably more so if you um, if you were to look at the numbers more closely. So it is a very important part of uh, the the banking industry strategy, and there's a lot of adaptation to make sure that we are getting into the flows. We call them getting into the flows. Uh, these are closed loop systems largely, so they have their own. Uh, payment capabilities, uh, regulators are trying to create the levels of interoperability to some degree of success in some markets and to a lesser extent in others. But financial services organizations, to stay relevant, really need to be able to partner on a, a sort of collective level to uh, the mobile money operators where we can. And I think there's space for that. Uh, the, the key is in the visibility of the flows and to be participants on the uh, closed loop systems that have been. Uh, put in place, and these are fragmented, as as was said. They, um, you know, it's in itself created probably a degree of uh, complexity that the continent could ill do with. And so, uh, getting some simplicity going, uh, where interoperability is uh, is key, both from formal to informal to mobile money, is going to be a a game changer for the economies of this of this continent as well. So it's an important and vital, in fact part of the banking industry's focus uh, and certainly is uh, part of the strategic framework in which we are sort of executing on. You mentioned the closed loop systems and it cast my mind back earlier in the year on FRT, uh, episode 85, we had Terry Angelos, the global head of fintech for Visa, 
We talked at length there about a lot of the great payments innovations that are happening around the world, led by the likes of M-Pesa in Kenya. And the challenge for these innovations on a closed loop basis, how do we provide that connectivity, help link them up across borders so that you can send money in remittances, so that you can sell to tourists, so that you can be a small business and an exporter? So I think there's a really important role there uh, for international banks and, and payments firms, and I do want to come back to that later. And also want to pick up the point about, about partnership models. For the moment, though, Megan, uh, let's talk about the different African markets, um, which those of us on the other side of the world often don't understand. If we could start close to home for you in South Africa, you were explaining to me recently about how some of the township economies work, how they're still very cash-based in terms of some of the closed-loop models, that if there's a great payments innovation, how do you get your on-ramps and off-ramps? Somebody locally needs to be that connectivity point. Can you tell us a bit more about some of those customer behaviours and preferences for payments in South Africa? Thanks. So I guess I'll share a little bit of context for our market in South Africa. So we do have highly sophisticated financial markets and we've got uh, 80% of our population is banked. We also have um, a lot of infrastructure. So we've got uh, about 50 ATMs per 100,000 people, which is at a similar level to Europe. So, so those are infrastructures that we have. But uh, as you mentioned, our, our township economies are largely cash-based. They, they will typically have a lot of very small, very small vendors. You might go have a guy operating out of a small container that only might sell 100 loaves of bread a day. That's his business. Um, and those, those businesses, of which there are many, are cash-based businesses. They are not inclined to accept card payments, which would be the de facto mechanism that we have in the more formal parts of our economy. So whatever we bring into those communities, there have to be mechanisms where we address both the needs of the consumer, but also the needs of these very small merchants that are operating kind of day-to-day -day operations as their livelihood. I think what is interesting as we look at the infrastructures that exist in different economies in, in the region, it goes beyond the banking system and sort of access to bank accounts. It includes the ATM infrastructures. It includes the, the geographic uh, reach of your, your mobile network. So a portion of our population is rural. They do not have uh, consistent uh, network access. So, so the little villages, they may just find that they, they're not online a lot of the time. The price of data in South Africa isn't necessarily where it, it should be to make the cost of, of data connectivity to access financial services affordable yet. And then another observation is that our, our supermarket chains are actually quite a key part, part portion of our financial infrastructure. So an observation made by a colleague was the fact that when MNOs launched their mobile money solutions, they thought the banks were their competitors, but it's actually the retailers. So we, we have actually quite effective domestic retail solutions through our big uh, supermarket chains. And they've partnered with the banks to be able to, to do that. And they're quite an integral part of the infrastructure that's there to facilitate certain financial services. So I think based on what you've got, you've got the infrastructures, and I think the point about partnerships is powerful. So the way in which banks partner with retailers or with uh, mobile network providers are the ways in which we create the geographical reach to bring services into these communities. But we also need to acknowledge you can't just solve for one piece. It's not just for consumers. It's for small merchants. It's how they make payment to the, um, the suppliers of those goods like bread and milk and et cetera that comes into there also need to be able to accept those digital payments. So we're doing a lot of work to solve for these ecosystems because 
in as much as we've been quite good to solve for the conversion of digital money into cash and cash back into digital, we want to try and reduce those, those, those transactions that keep turning their money back into cash because that causes so much expense for people. The other point though, I think is cash has its benefits. It's highly trusted, it's visible, I can see how much I've got. Um, it's, you know, in building digital solutions, we need to understand that we've got to compete with those compelling aspects of cash um, and not dismiss those because in a community that's living hand to mouth, cash has a lot of benefits and, and our digital solutions need to be able to compete with that as well. I find that really fascinating. Um, some really great insights there. Uh, and some of it is common to other parts of the world at the point about, for instance, the lack of reliable Wi-Fi connectivity in, in rural regions. Certainly at the IF, when we talk to people in Sweden and in Canada, that's something we've heard a lot as, as a big focus, especially for their remote northern regions. And the risk of financial exclusion if you don't have that underpinning supporting infrastructure in those communities. And when you mention the cost of data, I think a lot about a comment that Janet Yellen, US uh, Treasury Secretary, made earlier in the year, recounting that the thousands of American families have spent the last year sitting in the McDonald's parking lots because that was the one place they could get free Wi-Fi for their kids' schooling, which I think is quite an indictment in itself. So obviously, there's some great commonalities you've highlighted there that are common to what we see in other parts of the world, but also some very unique factors. The, the supermarket or grocery store model, uh, I think, is an especially fascinating one. Brad, I wanted to give you the chance to perhaps add anything further on the South African market, but I might just colour that a little with also the notion of the partnership model, uh, which you described earlier and, and Megan has also touched on. And in some of the IF's other work, we've been looking at the challenges in digital transformation across banks and insurers. Now, a lot of what we've heard has been about this notion of, of needing to partner with players in fintech firms, you know, new innovators and the like. Sometimes those new players are not enterprise ready or not scalable or not familiar with what it is to work with a, a regulated and risk conscious bank. And equally, the bank often is not ready for what it is to work with a very dynamic and agile fintech firm. So we've had this kind of shared challenge, shared evolution perhaps, in banks and fintechs needing to get better and smarter at working together. Wondering firstly whether that notion resonates with you and with your perceptions of the partnership model but also indeed uh, other observations from the South African experience that you'd recount. Yeah, Brad, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's exactly that. The financial services I work for a bank, it's been around for 158 years. You know, it's, a, it's got risk and uh, control and models inculcated in its, in its, its very DNA. And then you, you look at what uh, the world has started to produce in terms of the agility and the disruptive capabilities of the fintechs yeah, we've got numerous examples where we've failed because we haven't been able to to do the partnership thing, to pull the partnership thing together. It's it's an evolution, and it's vice versa. Of course, the the fintech being more focused, and I guess that's their trick is they're more focused on the customer experience, and so they come at it from a, a very different a different approach. And the the back office trust security, the the um, the the reliability is not as important as the customer experience from the outset. I, I do think it's a, it's, it's a, and, and I think the, the organizations are learning. Uh, maybe the learning uh, on the bank side is, is something that's probably going to turn it because, you know, there's going to be another fintech that starts up and uh, the bank needs to know, or the financial institution needs to know how they will work with these, these organizations. And in, in our case, we literally have now a, an area that, 
deals uh, a very different approach to the partnership model for that very reason that we are not good at partnering and you know we're a bank right we regulate we've got licenses to protect and so when anyone comes it's probably not defined as it's defined as partnership but reality is it's probably more uh, of a supplier or vendor and you're you're looking at it like that that's got to change you can't do it that way it has to be a an equal footing relationship and respect the fact that they have uh, they've, they've got your interest because they've done a, a job that you haven't been able to do um, and I think that's that's key so it's a difficult one to answer except that it is a critical part of financial services delivery and success for people who might be emerging out of the cash economy might be emerging out of mobile money which does have its limitations and would like to be able to use the bridge to get across to more formal financial services and yes that will also emerge but right now there is a place for a, a bank and a and a partnership with a fintech with a bridge to the extent that the financial services then are easily accessible whatever level wherever that consumer becomes uh, ready to you know grow or or take on a different different product or vehicle that that can uh, uh, enhance their lives and create the you know give them the experience they're looking for I think both in terms of how we approach the nature of partnerships how we approach banks own efforts at digitalization one thing we've heard very clearly in the IF Deloitte realizing the digital promise series was the fact that our our north star or our guiding tenant through all these journeys needs to be about the customer and about the customer's own needs and expectations Ben I, I do want to delve a little further into this comparison across different African markets your report noted a number of different usage patterns for mobile money across different countries, and you made the observation that this uptake has been strongest in those countries that have had less established banking systems. I was wondering if you could talk us through that a little. Yeah, sure. Um, as I touched upon earlier, this was not surprisingly our hypotheses when we set out to conduct this analysis. And what we did to look into this matter is to compare two data points from the IMF's financial access survey, uh, one being the number of mobile money accounts uh, relative to population, and the other one being the number of traditional deposit accounts uh, relative to population. And the latter is supposed to function here as kind of a proxy for access to traditional banking services. And what we found is essentially this. There is a large group of countries that provide support for our hypotheses, meaning the number of deposit accounts is relatively low and the corresponding number of mobile money accounts is really high. And this includes, for example, two of the continent's uh, largest economies, uh, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. In addition to that, there are two countries with relatively large numbers of deposit accounts and relatively low use of mobile money services. This is also supportive of our hypotheses, and these two are Nigeria and South Africa. South Africa is one of the countries with uh, the highest number of deposit accounts, as Megan uh, kind of mentioned earlier, uh, for a number of reasons. One, we all know about the depth of the uh, South African financial system. The other one is that these accounts are needed to receive government transfer payments. In Nigeria, where the number of deposit accounts is a little higher, the use of mobile money is still very, very low. And we think that's a reflection of the continued use of cash in, in a lot of business transactions. However, there's also a group of countries where access to traditional banking services is low, but so is the use of uh, mobile money accounts. 
And while that first may sound a little confusing, we think this is more a temporary phenomenon rather than a true structural difference between these groups of countries. It's probably due to the fact that mobile money technology has not uh, brought into these markets to the same extent as it has in these other countries. Finally, we also see a few outliers where we have a big overlap between banked individuals and mobile money users. And I think this refers to a bigger issue that I'm going to get to in a second. Uh, one example for this pattern is Kenya. And conceptually, this makes sense, right? Imagine someone living in a big city who has access to traditional banking services, but who also relies on mobile money services to reach relatives in more uh, rural uh, regions. Uh, so in effect, what the consumer does here is to uh, maintain these parallel structures and then choose the most convenient or most cost efficient way of conducting his or her business. Now, the fact that consumers have to maintain these parallel structures is also a reflection of the fact that mobile money providers have been very reluctant to become interoperable with bank accounts. I think that interoperability point is a really fascinating one in itself. And it reminds me at our annual membership meeting a couple of years ago, First Rand's then Chief Risk Officer, Yako Grobler, made the point that, that you actually saw this really interesting trend across the continent where the banks were increasingly using Western technology, Western cloud service providers and the like. And a lot of the telcos were using the Chinese infrastructure, the Chinese tech firms. And that in itself, I think, throws up a really interesting challenge or question for future interoperability as well. Brad, I was wondering if I could get your thoughts in terms, uh, obviously, in, in your role looking across the continent and across the different countries, whether there are some particular noteworthy usage patterns or localized factors that you would most want to highlight. I, I noticed you mentioned earlier about the exponential shift observed in Ghana and also in Zambia. But what most stands out for you across some of these markets? Yeah, where do you start with this one? The interesting phenomenon is, as you as you mentioned or was mentioned earlier in the research, that you know the East African component of the continent has uh, probably had the levels of of regulation that have maybe not been as sophisticated, and the financial service delivery not so sophisticated. And that's where we picked up on the delivery of mobile money. Clearly, it served a particular need. And was that bridge between cash and digital? But largely, uh, even in markets like Kenya, you'll still find that the uh, the mechanism to move money to rural areas is the Mpesa world or something similar. But of course, then the, the rematerialization to cash is is the one that still continues to show up. And so that relationship is one that you want to be able to continue to drive a decaching of that behaviour. Uh, but what I was keen to mention is that in some of those economies, the relationship with cash is also very important. And so it might it might be tangible, real time, you know, and physical, but also culturally it has it has a role to play. And that's a difficult one to offer a digital alternative to. And that's a it's an a key it's a key point you've got to be able to bear in mind as we drive the benefits of digital versus versus cash based um, transactions. Now in West Africa and largely in places like Nigeria, where the regulator or the regulation has still been largely in favor of established banks and financial services institutions of that nature, mobile money hasn't uh, shown uh, the growth. I do, I do not think, though, that in those types of economies where there is a more formal 
And I say that with reservation because even in Nigeria, formal banking doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's got a bank account. In fact, it's probably in the region of 30%, if not less, that have a bank account. But you, you, you are likely to find as they relax the regulation that mobile money might well have a space there. And, and coupled with the concept of borderless banking, or not borderless banking, but borderless call it jurisdictions, uh, you might well find that there are people who are comfortable, who are working in the diaspora, sending money home over a particular mobile money network, that their, their own propensity to adopt mobile money, even in a, an economy as sophisticated as, say, South Africa, might be uh, enhanced because they're comfortable with the cross-border experience they are deliver- getting delivered to uh, in terms of remittances, sending money home. And so that mobile money service might well be something that they would then translate into a, a more permanent store of value and maybe trade off against a, a traditional bank account. It'd be interesting to see whether that happens. My sense is that as we become borderless, people will start being comfortable if they can get a very consistent experience from where they were, where they originated, to where they're working if they are working in another country. That coupled with the other phenomenon, which is that the continent is, is still not seeing, and it's only a matter of time, I don't think anyone would, would uh, disagree with the likes of the big techs, the, the WhatsApps, the Alipays, the or the Amazons and the likes of it will, will likely drive a, a cash displacement, which might also move, move that paradigm and put people more on the trajectory of electronic. The key would be whether it's electronic under your traditional set of rails like card and EFT and bank account type origination, or whether it's something that originates off mobile money, clearly a lot, a lot bigger, but it might be also a bridge that, you know, the the rails themselves might be useful, even if they are card rails, onto a mobile money uh, environment that could then stimulate uh, adoption and move people away from the cash, the cash um, situation. Brad, I think you've touched on the, the two big meta issues that we see in payments worldwide. One with the big tech firms and the fact that their business models quite often intrinsically are, are tied to the monetization of the customer's data. And so I think there's a whole series of different policy considerations that we're, we're probably still working through as to exactly how, how all of that fits. But obviously, they have the great network effects of the other parts of their business that they're able to leverage. The other is the, the way that you talk about remittances. And without meaning to give an undue plug off the side here, I'm going to be speaking with Sopnendu Mahanti, the, the Chief Fintech Officer of the Monetary Authority of Singapore, in the Cybos conference in a couple of weeks. And in our preparation for that, Sopnindu was really citing the digital identity work done in Singapore together with Thailand, specifically as a means of tying their payments and identity systems across borders together. And the point I thought was really fascinating was was Sopnindu was emphasising the importance that they've recognised they're a migrant economy and that they therefore need to have solutions that work specifically for migrants that are sending money back home and the like. Whereas, of course, a lot of the digital identity solutions we're seeing touted by governments elsewhere are very much focused on their own citizens and and could leave that gap. So there's a real need for that cognizance of the particular services that migrants and those in the diaspora need, which you've outlined very well for us. I've got a couple of things I still want to talk about. I realise we've covered a lot of ground already, but I do want to touch on inclusion and also this point about international connectivity. And so maybe if we can talk a a little further about inclusion. Ben, your, your report noted the financial inclusion benefits where mobile money can help to reach some of the population that was previously unbanked. Wondering if you can talk a bit about some of the, the different causes of exclusion, why people are unbanked, and the extent to which mobile payments might help to address perhaps some of those causes, but not others. Yeah, thank you for the question, Brad. Um, I, I think th- the way we should think about mobile money is, is really as 
as an additional tool, but not necessarily the solution to all problems in, in this area. And when we look at reasons for why people do not have a traditional financial institution account, uh, the way it was documented in the Global Findex survey, then we see some barriers that mobile money services may able to address, but they're actually not as high up on the priority list than others. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, the answer accounts being too expensive. That's about 25% of respondents that mentioned that or that financial institution is physically too far away. That's a little more than 20%. However, the, the most important reasons that people mentioned in this survey is A, that they do not need an account. That's about 30%. And then two thirds of the respondents said that they simply didn't have enough money for a financial institution account. And the last one, mobile money services may be able to address in a way, but that depends a lot on the fee structure. For example, uh, there are a lot of transactions that are of a size that do not necessarily require a, a deposit account with a financial institution and are currently conducted in cash, but there may be advantages of mobile money technology there. But I think overall, the, the conclusion is that the biggest barriers to financial service access are actually not primarily those that mobile money providers can address. I think it's a really important point that we need to see great innovations like this that can help inclusion as being partial solutions and not as a silver bullet or a panacea. There are people, unfortunately, that just don't have any money and a new technology solution is not magically going to change that. But there's some really important incremental progress being made, which is very heartening. Brad, I wanted to pick up another thing with you in this inclusion space. Uh, I mentioned earlier CIB Egypt's former chairman, Hisham Al Arab, and he's spoken at length with us at the IEF about the mindset shift from branches to devices, as he put it, and how in his bank's case, there were tens of millions of people in rural areas of Egypt who were not previously viable as customers to the bank in a, in a strictly economic sense when the bank thought only in terms of its bricks and mortar branches. But when you had not only the changing cost economics but also the mindset shift to focus more in terms of mobile devices. Suddenly, so many of these people became viable. And, uh, and so he really emphasizes this mindset shift alongside the cost economics as a real game changer uh, and one that makes the inclusion proposition so much stronger. Just wondering whether that's something that you see, either in South Africa or in other markets, this notion of the mindset shift and where banks are repositioning themselves with their value proposition that enables you to reach more customers. Yeah, thanks, Brad. No, that's... Um... That is the the model, isn't it? Uh, to be able to serve a customer, on board first of all, a customer digitally, and then to serve that customer digitally without having them having to go into a physical form factor. The banks can't sustain the branch networks, and that's not something that isn't, uh, you know, in the public eye. We're we're all downsizing and repurposing uh, our branches, and and South Africa is a prime example of that. I think though that across the continent. It's it's an interesting dynamic because that still has to happen, but the reality is that there is still a cash in a, or a last mile delivery as well as a last mile um, fulfillment that's necessary. And the mix the mix is the is is the trick. The idea would be still to take 
things to a level of digital, you might want to take your uh, spaza shops or your uh, hole in the wall or your sooks or home stores, as they call them all over the continent, and get them onto a platform that is the same platform that the customer who walks in is able to then utilize. And if you're, if you're able to do that, then you're able to get rid of your formal infrastructure, your bank infrastructure, and leverage the, uh, the informal trader network, but on a digital set of capabilities. And I think that that's, that's also not something that's a trade secret because it's quite in the public eye that that's a, a, a key strategy, certainly of ours, to focus on the last mile delivery, but through being able to create platforms on which others can also participate. We've recently announced one of those, and the, uh, the idea is that a merchant as well as a consumer can be on that same, self-same platform in a market where they where they both reside or even in a market where one is across the border but the the single platform experience is achieved and digitally achieved and minimized any human or physical interface so it's absolutely correct it is the the model that uh, we're all pursuing well you've actually given me a great segue there it's great that you highlight the point about platforms and i think how banks are facing into the platformization of consumer finance is another one of the great mega themes of the world at the moment So Megan, I wanted to pick up the topic of international connectivity with you. And obviously, a lot of the mobile money scenarios that we've talked about here, we've related to them as being domestically focused or closed loop systems. We touched a little earlier on the fact that there is a need for banks or international card schemes or whoever to provide some of that connectivity so that you can export or sell to tourists or remit money. I wanted to get your perspective on how you see this part shaking out for the connectivity across borders. We recently had an opportunity to speak to the banking associations of Thailand and Singapore, who you'll know have just connected up their faster payment systems. And I, I wondered if they, they had a shared kind of infrastructure from um, Vocalink and if that was something that helped. And they said, well, you know, the technology can always overcome. The real, the real challenge was addressing the differences in rules and regulations in each country and that they'd actually gone with what they called an asymmetrical model. And we've tried to do some similar things in, in our SADC region. There was a big push and commitment from the central banks in, in, the, in the sub-Saharan Africa to create these uh, regional payment systems. And we found that the differences in the rules and regulations in each country create quite an impediment for you to come collectively as banks to build these systems. So... I think it has to almost come from the global scheme. So the the MoneyGrams and the Western Unions, the card schemes, their partnerships with fintechs, because they can almost create the business cases that support the heavy lifting that's going to be required to try and plumb in systems that accommodate the domestic realities in the sort of sending versus receiving country and, and provide the rails that can connect them up. So I think it's possible, but it's very difficult to achieve if you're going to get a whole lot of parties around a table, MNOs and banks or fintechs and big techs, to come and agree to collaborate, to, to accommodate each other's systems and create standards. Whereas if you have an operator that says, I'll build the connectivity, you guys just jump on, that seems more viable. So I sense that it will certainly come, but it's going to come from the big global payments operators who who looking to kind of follow this network of network approaches, they have much more, more viability of success than we'd have from trying to do it through partnerships, I think, where, where banks try to partner with MNOs who try to partner with 
you know, I don't know, fintechs in the region because because you all have to accommodate your own internal standards to try and find some some common standard. And that's quite a, a big ask and, and quite difficult to find business cases that resonate for each of the parties in the supply chain. So so my sense is it will happen, but it's got to come from some centralized unit who does the heavy lifting and allows us to jump on. At the IF, our steering committee on digital finance is co-chaired by BBVA's chairman, Carlos Torres Villa. And he often talks about the great challenge of enabling connectivity and consistency across borders and across sectors or across traditional sectoral boundaries. And I think what you've just alluded to there, Megan, is the nexus of where you've got both of those sets of challenges all at once in this space, really just to underline the complexity. One other point I want to pick up on the international connectivity side, and I realise I've cited Visa already in this conversation, so I hope I'm not too skewed. But I can also cite the, the regional CEO, Andrew Tor, who spoke in our G20 conference in June. And Andrew made the point there that Nigeria is often a really strong testbed for innovation because it's a large market where you can achieve scale. But this also re- makes it really important for the neighbouring countries around Nigeria to have policies or systems that are conducive so that the same innovation that's tested and hopefully succeeded in Nigeria can be readily deployed across into those markets. And Brad, I just wanted to get your sense as you look at the emergence of payments, innovations, the ability for cross-border flows. Does this observation from Andrew also resonate with you? Uh, yeah, Brad, it, it does. At the expense of repeating what Megan said, you know, the, the challenge we've got is that the ability to take and create a, a replicable model across each of these uh, markets is really challenging. And uh, and so it is it really, it's vital that Somehow we find that mechanism. I like the the, the way she puts it. The, the likes of the the visas and Mastercards and the big the big payments companies are probably the better model than trying to do it from each country's own sort of regulatory uh, ground up position because it it is just so complex to achieve that. But you know the innovation elements and and some of them are successful. And you know out, out of Nigeria there there are a couple that are, you can cite that are, have really managed to get themselves well-placed not only in the Nigerian economy, which has clearly given them uh, the, the level of uh, adoption that can justify them expanding, but then to grow into other markets. Uh, recently, you know, Flutterway have done a significant uh, job of me- managing to grow across the uh, African continent and also run fundraise to achieve that, to, to, to fund that growth. Um, and they have managed to get it right in, in, other, in other economies with regulators and the regulations they've had to, they've had to abide by. But I don't think it's easy. It's hard yards. A lot of the work we've been doing is recognize that if you've already got a partner who's got that regulatory service and they've done it for many years to, to, to actually close a partner with them and rather than to compete with them because setting those things up is, is a real challenge. And these are the fintechs that have actually done the hard yards to, uh, to achieve, uh, you know, relevance and presence in other markets where, you know, they've, they've wanted to grow. But it, it is vital. It is vital to achieve. And I think you wonder whether or not that whilst innovation is, is prolific, I guess, across the continent, a lot of the innovation ends up being constrained into markets where they've, they've, they were born um, and, ha- and they struggle to take it across border again because there is this very different landscape policy and regulation and all the things that they're having to work with. And I guess that's where the partnership comes in nicely with the, the financial institutions, the banks as well, who have got presence across all these markets, where the, the partnership can be leveraged uh, with the relationship of the, um, of the central banks and make the, the 
entry into those markets a lot easier for the fintechs or the partnerships that you've created. So maybe that part, that is a, a key theme is if you've got the presence in those markets, partnering with a fintech who wants to gain access into those markets might be a good option if, if the current banking institution has already set that up. Uh, to conclude, let's look a little ahead and, and look at the future outlook and the big tech players, uh, which obviously loom significantly within that. Ben, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little on the part from your report about the potential growth and the dominance of big tech players in this market. Yeah, sure. So, so this is for me really one of the most fascinating elements of this discussion, that, that an industry that has grown so rapidly in recent years may actually transform itself again as quickly uh, going forward. What I think is important here is to understand how mobile money services actually operate, not only in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And what I'm going to talk about is at least how the, D- how the IMF defines mobile money services uh, in, its, uh, in its survey. So the, the technology for, for the service is installed in the SIM card of a device and basically links the phone number with a secure account, which is then used to send or receive funds. So since the service is basically integrated into the phone itself, its use is essentially like sending a text message. And importantly, these services do not require any application and thus no smartphone either. Now, the, the differing definitions of mobile money, and, and there I'm returning to a point that I made at the beginning, is maybe also why we're seeing these different estimates as to the size of the mobile money market. What, it, what exactly constitutes a mobile money transaction in, in a specific survey? Now, what we're seeing is that smartphones have become much more affordable. Chinese producers have played an important role here. Data connections uh, are becoming more available and they are becoming more affordable. And this means that app-based services can potentially attract a much larger market share. And and this has to do with the fact that they're potentially more user-friendly. The current way the mobile money transactions are conducted. First of all, in a lot of cases, it involves simply calling an agent instead of using the built-in technology in the phone. And also to start using the service, it's, uh, it's necessary to, uh, to register in person with someone, with an agent, and provide some documentation. So application-based services, the, the way we use them, can be much more user-friendly than this. And while this may be an opening for uh, local and regional banks, uh, as we've heard from our other speakers before, it provides a tremendous opportunity for global players, global payment platforms and big tech companies. These companies have existing applications that can be introduced to the sub-Saharan African market with relatively little cost. And most importantly, existing providers may not be able to compete with these new uh, market players as far as the the cost of the services is concerned. Many mobile money services in sub-Saharan Africa have some fee structure that either uh, has a fee that is uh, relative to the amount of money that is being transferred. Others have a, a fixed fee structure for transactions under under a certain level. but 
put this in comparison to a company such as Alipay, where, where cash transfers are essentially free. And something, Brad, you mentioned earlier, and that I'm sure we're going to get into uh, a little deeper as well, is that they're, they're cross-subsidizing uh, their payment platforms from the monetization of the use of the user data. Now, it's important when we're talking about big tech entering this market more and more, these, these firms have other advantages as well. And, and one is that it's a persistent challenge for smaller operators in the mobile money industry to manage the currency conversions that are involved in many of these transactions. And what they do in many cases is that they hold various currencies and essentially carry the exchange rate risk. Now, this is much easier to do for a larger company uh, entering into this market. Now, this role that big tech may play in the future is a development that happens at the same time as the, as the consolidation in this very fragmented industry, the growing involvement of foreign investors, and as I said, the, the spread of uh, smartphone-based applications, no matter who is introducing them to the industry. Now, this is actually something I wanted to hear Megan and Brad's perspective on, how they see the future of the mobile money sector from their local perspective and their experience with this industry within their own work. Um, so, Megan, maybe you can uh, give us a start on that. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, so in South Africa, the banks reach their customers I guess through three channels, internet banking, the banking apps, and then what we call the USSD channel. It's, it's how you've described it. It's basically a very simple drop-down menu accessed through a dial string. And we have made quite good strides as an industry to increase the functionality offered on basic bank accounts by, um, as Brad mentioned, your ability to onboard a client through the USSD applications. You can open an account without coming to a branch, and then you can start to transact on that account through this, basically on a very basic um, mobile device. We also have very sophisticated banking apps, and, and my bank recently experienced uh, our banking app has overtaken internet banking um, as a platform, and in terms of the transactions, they're very feature-rich. You can do lots of things like pay your speeding fines and all kinds of extra features. So that is our environment currently, and I think it's important to differentiate the role of the basic phone as an access mechanism relative to the feature phone, or, or, or rather the smartphone, which gives you much richer functionality, and, and the banks are kind of trying to be relevant in that space. But, of course, there are many global platforms that will bring their technologies, their platforms, their services, and embedded within that is likely to be payments, uh, systems, and wallets, et cetera. And I think that's the step change from what Africa's experienced as the mobile wallet and mobile payment into what will be a, a much richer environment um, with, with much more functionality as the continent gets access to those cheaper smartphones and as a variety of parties will bring app-based functionality. And and, and the point Brad Gillis made as well, the regulatory environment is critical, whether the offering of accounts and stores of value by non-banks is permitted, like it is in some of those jurisdictions, versus whether you have to be a bank or have a bank partner will also um, have an influence on how quickly these things can be adopted. So 
it's absolutely a space to watch. And I think if we talk back to those infrastructures, the infrastructures of, of access to, to smartphones will be a game changer. They will absolutely bring global players into that community. They will be defined on what they're allowed to do based on regulatory environments. And I guess one interesting element for us is kind of this the sovereign risk. It's the appetite of countries to say, do we want our payments, our retail payment systems to be operated and run by foreign domiciled countries? And in South Africa, our regulators express concern about it. They want our operators, even Visa and MasterCard, to put down local operations so that the payments processing and, and payments data is stored locally and within, within South Africa and we have no sovereign risks. And you do see different flavors of that across Africa, strong inclination for localization. They want some of their payment industries to be local industries. They want to have say and control over that. So the appetite for big global players to come and bring solutions may be tempered around this sort of notion of localization and, and sovereignty of data which I anticipate, I mean, that's a global theme, and I think we're going to see more of that as we understand the way in which data can be used for, for good, but also for, for, for not so good purposes. And that's probably something that's going to develop out and become much more relevant in the payments environment. Thanks. Yes, thank you, Megan, for those very, very interesting points. Uh, if, if I may ask uh, Brad to add to this from his experience. So thanks, Ben. It's a uh... Interesting. I was. I, I mean, I think of everything that Megan says is absolutely. I'm in agreement with the, uh, the ongoing movement, and I'm going to talk about what we call Africa regions. In other words, outside of the South African market, it, it's you know it's still very predominantly USSD, but the movement onto sort of smartphones is definitely ticking up. I think the big tech phenomenon will drive that again. The platform, you know, the uh, social media platforms are. Uh, a huge uh, across the continent, certainly the likes of WhatsApp, and that's going to drive adoption as well. What I was going to mention, which was slightly in a different tack, is the extent to which the mobile network operators are reaching a level of um, maturity, which might see a shift in their model as well. Recently, we saw Airtel purchased, or at least, uh, I don't know if it was all, but it certainly was a, a chunk of their mobile money business to MasterCard, for instance. And shortly thereafter, MTN announced a valuation of 5 billion US for their mobile money business. Now, you, you start thinking if they're pivoting because they've reached a level of maturity, the mobile money and financial services world that they provide might be uh, poised for a shift. They may be needing the funding for things like 5G and they may have to, to do that trade-off. It also in, in the continent, Let's be clear, financial services is a tough business. To provide financial services requires scale. And a lot of people are very much entry level and probably to make it financially viable, it's got to be on a volume model, if you like. And so, you know, if, if anything, I think there's, there's likely to be a shift in the well, financial services, one banks for another and mobile and the mobile networks themselves, you know, to adjust to a maturing model with revenues that are probably, well, definitely feeling the, the squeeze, if you like, and they need to find new revenue streams. And it may not only, it may not be in financial services, but that's a, that's a long shot. I suspect they will still be playing a very relevant role there. But I, I do think that there's going to be some, some shifts uh, and stuff we would have not even contemplated that will, will, will occur as a result of the models becoming so mature. Thank you, Brad, for those comments. Maybe, um, Megan, for one final point, whilst we've been talking about big tech, 
Just linking to the recent FSB payments targets consultation, where you were among the, the many IAF members that gave us some great contributions uh, for our comments at that time. But we referenced how the big tech business models rely very heavily on consumer data. This notion of perhaps the cross-subsidization from the other streams of their, their business. And the big tech firms might come along and say that they can make the payment at a much cheaper cost than the established channels. But then there might be a hidden cost, perhaps, of monetizing your data. And I don't know whether that data is worth 30 basis points or 80 or 250, but I think it's certainly worth something. And I just wanted to get your thoughts, perhaps, that when we're looking at the costs of payments, if we're trying to get some sort of accurate or holistic view, how important do you think it is that we're considering the value of the data that a customer has to give up? Yeah, so I think banks are sometimes berated for not using the data, enormous amount of data that they sit on that the big techs would love to get their hands on. But I do reflect on the fact that banks are trusted with your private financial information in the same way that they're trusted with your savings. And so I worry about how access, free access to one's financial information can be used but also misused. But nevertheless, there are lots of ways in which banks are embracing the use of data to reduce risk, I think, in the first instance. So detecting fraud by analyzing data is a, is, a, is a great use case. How you use data better to assess credit profiles and you know extend credit into previously underserved markets, for example. There's a lot of great use cases for data and data analytics. There are a lot of new client value propositions that you can provide with data. The, the double-edged sword is making sure that you do it responsibly and, I guess, in an environment of open banking where customers may be more inclined to share their data with the promise of stuff that will come, what does it mean when it's, uh, when it's financial data? You know, we sometimes joke about, you know, you can't, you can't fake your financial situation on Facebook, but um, what happens when, when that all goes, go, you know, becomes available and, and, and what do you inadvertently expose yourself to? So, so yes, I think it's a journey. I think, I think we need to apply almost the same rigor to financial data as we do to, to your deposits and your savings, and in some ways help customers protect them from themselves and have, have a lot of rigor and regulatory rigor around how financial data is used and making sure that we do only have good consumer outcomes. So, so you're not exactly addressing the question of value. The value is undoubted and Certainly, you know, South Africa's investing in a multi-billion rand um, faster payments rail, which we can almost justify because it's on the ISO 2 standard. It's a much richer data standard than our current architecture, which is like ancient. And, and we can justify that because the data gives us so much potential capabilities. And so it's, a, it's an articulation of, I think, that the value that we see in the transactional data in terms of our own use, our own risk management, also how we can serve our customers better through having richer data. And it also speaks to ecosystems. When you can plan uh, businesses and people together, or businesses and businesses, and you can put more data into the messages to help them integrate into their own business systems um, and help them manage liquidity or, or reconcile their debtors' books, et cetera, that's very powerful. So I think there's a lot of very cool solutions that come out of the data, which we're currently exploring. Um, and that's absolutely the, the rationale for the investment and modernization of rails is the ability to do more with the data rather than our traditional features of, of payment systems. You're actually bringing me back to a couple of points that we've often harped on about here on FRT. Uh, one being the findings from the Bank of England's Future Refinance Report in 2019. Uh, great work by our friend Hugh Van Stenis. 
but also repeated by some BIS analysis this year, showing that consumers overwhelmingly trust their banks with their personal data far more than they trust tech firms or governments or anyone else. And on the one hand, I think that's a great opportunity and it shows an area of potential differentiation that banks can make the centrepiece of their customer offering in the new digital world. But it also comes with the fact that you need to preserve that trust. You need to ensure that you are continuing to protect that data, continuing to use it ethically and transparently, and that this trust position is not just a once-off snapshot of today, but rather something that's going to endure. So thank you, Brad, Megan and Ben. I'm going to have a quick crack at trying to call out some of the key takeaways from our discussion, um, which has been very wide-ranging and extensive. Uh, we started looking at the sheer magnitude of this market and the growth and what's been cited, uh, as, as Ben pointed out, nine of the top 10 mobile money countries in the world being in this region. But the market size is 20% of the regional GDP. But that if you actually filtered out some of the countries with stronger banking, established banking networks and, and lower mobile adoption, then it actually grows to about 35% of GDP. It's enormous. It's a really big force in the market to be reckoned with. We talked a lot about the partnership model and how for financial institutions, it's crucial to be partnering with fintechs and with new payments innovators, but it does come with the challenges on both sides of the fence, the things that both the new entrants and fintechs and also the banks themselves each need to be bridging, each need to be getting better at. The closed loop systems was a big thing. The nexus of both the cross-border challenges and the cross-sectoral challenges Megan made that point very well about how we need to face into local regulations and local last mile issues, which all vary very much from place to place. Uh, She also highlighted the role of the global schemes in perhaps helping to streamline and make some of this more achievable for other participants to plug into. But of course, we also continue to run into some of the localization challenges. The cultural role of cash. I found this one really interesting. It's not one that I would have thought of, but we need to be conscious that cash does have a significant cultural role in some places. And that does really affect the opportunities and the level uh, of displacement and the level of adoption and innovation. It's a really interesting element to keep in mind. I'll probably put that alongside some of the inclusion elements we discussed also, where mobile money can be very helpful, but it's not a panacea amidst a, a myriad of some very different inclusion challenges. And lastly, on big tech, we talked about their incredible reach with their network effects. Brad just a moment ago cited how WhatsApp's presence in the region is so enormous. But of course, in that context, we need to be conscious of the data monetization that is at the heart of their business models. So thank you, Brad. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Ben. It's been great to have you with us on FRT. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And looking ahead on FRT, we're going to look at the new Global Assurance Identity Network, or GAIN, white paper, which the IAF published with the support of 150 plus identity experts from around the world. We're going to review the Bail Committee's recent consultation on crypto assets. And we're going to speak with Rolf Hamers, UBS's CEO and a great champion of innovation, both in his current role, but also in his previous one, where he was at ING and on the IF Board of Directors. So please join us again for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening on FRT.